0: Are you looking for a chance to connect with other development professionals and learn the latest in fundraising best practices? If so, join us at the beautiful Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida for the 2022 Petrus Development Conference on June 13th through 15th. Connect with others from fundraising offices, both big and small, from diocese, campus ministries, schools, parishes, apostolates, and more. Register today at PetrusDevelopment.com PDC22. The first 10 people to register in the month of April will receive a $40 voucher for round-trip transportation between the airport and the resort. Space is limited, so visit PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22 to reserve your spot today.
1: Welcome to the Holy Donors podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Wren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the
2: world. So Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. Dear diary, today was a beautiful relaxing day, but I'm still worried about poor Johnny. I hope he's okay. I searched for the first ship home as soon as I heard the news that he was sick. I feel so relieved that I was able to find a cabin on a ship, on its way to America so quickly. It's on its maiden voyage. Everything is brand new, and everyone is so nice. There seems to be so much room in the first class floor. The ship is huge. They say it's the biggest ever built. Oh, hell. What a bump. Can't this ship keep a straight line? I'm going to go find that dang captain and give him a piece of my mind for ruining my diary page. Oh, well. They said this ship was unsinkable.
0: Well, howdy everyone. Welcome back to another season of Holy Donors. I am Andrew Robison, president of Petrus and organizer of this great group of people talking about some holy donors this season. We got Matt here with us. Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to be here. This is gonna be great. And Matt, you are the primary researcher, so you'll be doing most of the talking this season, right?
2: I am. I am the quotation mark expert. Quotation okay. mark. Right, <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, yeah. And welcome back to Ren Hayne, our replacement historian. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Andrew. I've been really enjoying uh, being able to bring some historical context to the show. <laughs> Hey,
1: what are you doing, man? Get out of my chair.
0: Wally, you're back. Hey, I'm back and better than ever, baby. Welcome back, Thaddeus. I'm glad you could So join us. good to be back with
1: my uh, three musketeers on the holy donors. I'm Thaddeus Romanski, your so-called historical expert. Oh, very good. Well, welcome back. We'll see if I can hold it up because I know Wren did a heck of a job the last few seasons. Can,
0: can I stop calling you Wally Pip now? Please. <laughs> okay. All right, Matt, so being the expert on this season, where are we going to start with this great story about a great holy donor?
2: We're actually going to start back in July 18th of 1867 in a small town in Hannibal, Missouri. Now, hey, wasn't there,
1: there's another extremely famous American associated with Hannibal, Missouri. Tell us about that connection.
2: Yeah, it's actually Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain was raised, not born, but raised in Hannibal. So when you hear the great stories of the Mississippi River that he painted, it was actually the canvas that he saw in Hannibal, Missouri.
0: Ah, very cool. You know, my wife and I honeymooned in Calaveras County, which is where Mark Twain Mm -hmm. wrote the story about the jumping frog contest, right?
1: That's right. The the great jumping frog of Calaveras County? Is that Title
0: of the story? <laughs> so. It's been a while. I don't remember all of that.
1: That story, by the way, was actually the inspiration for the '80s video game Frogger. The Calaveras County <laughs> yeah. jumping frogs.
2: Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, you'll believe anything. <laughs> I <do. laughs> so I still feel like I'm the guy you know, guiding these yeah. two down yeah. this story. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we, continue. We Sorry, brother. We good? Sorry, brother. <laughs> was there a bustling port town somewhere in here? <laughs> yeah, there was. All right. So the story we're going to tell today and the story we're going to tell through this season is of a Margaret Tobin, also called Maggie, uh, later known as Margaret Brown.
0: Yeah. And then she became the famous
2: Molly Brown, right? The unsinkable Molly Brown? Actually, not so fast. So there's Maggie and Margaret Mm -hmm. and there's Molly. Okay. Maggie and Margaret Brown, Molly Brown, same person except for one's real, and one was almost totally made up by Hollywood. And the story goes that Richard Morris, who made the musical, the unsequel, Molly Brown, said that Maggie or Margaret didn't really sound that well when you sung it, so he changed her name to Molly. So she never actually went by Molly Brown.
0: (laughs) What do they call that, creative license?
2: Ah, yeah, it's something.
0: All right, perfect. So tell us about Margaret Brown.
2: So she was born to Irish immigrants— John and Johanna Tobin.
1: So yeah, John and Johanna, based on what we know about them, they're probably products of that classic period of Irish immigration in the late 1840s, 1850s, as a result of of the Irish potato famine. Fleeing poverty, oppression, still lack of opportunity in Ireland. And the stories of possibility and opportunity in the United States continued to filter back home and the chance to, you know, practice their faith freely and live in tight-knit, prosperous communities with their fellow Irish Catholics was really attractive and that continued to draw significant numbers of Irish to the United States, even in this post-Civil War
2: period. So John and Johanna, they both were, were married before, so they both were married. And they each had a so child. So Let me get this straight: they were both married before. They were, yeah, they, they were. <laughs> okay, just wanted to clarify. Yeah. Yes, they both were married before, and they had they each had a daughter, and they found their way to Hannibal, Missouri. Hannibal Mo. Hannibal Mo. They met actually at a close knit Irish Catholic community in Hannibal. Which is fascinating because later on when when we learn about Margaret and her future husband. It's going to come back around. It is. It's going to come right back around. Margaret is the second child of John and Johanna. Following her older brother, there was Daniel, born in 1863. Uh, she came around in 1867. Then there was William, Helen, and a fifth child, Michael. He was the youngest. He died in infancy. Little Michael, rest in peace. Yeah. They lived in a small four-room cottage. And when I say four-room, I'm not saying four-bedroom. Four rooms. That was it. Just a few blocks away from their from their childhood home was the banks of the Mississippi River. Again, this this story of uh, Mark Twain, the same Mississippi River that he would write about in his books. And they lived in a in the Irish shanty town of Hannibal, Missouri. So what was it
0: like growing up as a young kid in Hannibal?
2: So she was born in 1867, right after the end of the Civil War. Her dad fought for the Union, more than likely, during the war. But she grew up in this hyper-focused political climate where she saw all these things that people, not only did that they fought for, but that they had to suffer through. And her dad was very good at kind of teaching her about that and gave her this political awareness that she later used, used in life, which led, in later life a future role in standing up for the less fortunate. She was very close to her brother Daniel later on with her sister Helen, and they would play games like marbles and tag and mumbly peg. Mumbly peg. Tell me more. So this is, this is a fantastic game. They would take a pocket knife, mm-hmm. and they would drop it or throw it at their feet, and mm-hmm. they would try to get as close to their own foot as they could. And how you won the game was you got it as close to your foot or you hit your foot. So if you hit your foot, you won the game. If you didn't hit your foot, the person who had the knife closest to their foot won. This was a fantastic time to grow up, don't you think, Andrew? (laughs) I mean, we get to throw knives at each other. I mean, (laughs) these kids nowadays with YouTube and Switch tablets and cell phones, I mean, they didn't have anything compared to Mumbly Peg.
0: Nope, no Mumbly Peg app on the phone. Maybe there's a market there.
2: Hi, I'm Peter DeCairtree, Program Director and Instructor for the Institute for Catholic Philanthropy MBA program at the University of Mary. I've been in development for 30 years and can say without question that earning an advanced degree in Philanthropy and Development was one of the most valuable experiences I have ever had. The Institute for Catholic Philanthropy at the University of Mary provides tactical training for new and experienced Catholic development professionals. It balances on-site, cohort-style learning with the convenience of remote coursework. If you've ever considered leading a Catholic organization or helping drive the new evangelization, enroll today in the University of Mary MBA program. We are producing the sort of well-trained, committed leaders that are crucial to the Catholic Church for generations to come. Learn more at umary.edu philanthropy.
1: But on on a serious note, it also sounds like she probably took to standing up for the less fortunate and wanting to work on their behalf in a charitable way because of her own circumstances that she came from. She was quite poor. She was relegated to the Irish, basically, ghetto of Hannibal, shantytown. So I think this is really important that you're drawing out the humble, even destitute circumstances that she came from. But... She's going to be brought off on a path that's going to take her in a probably totally unexpected direction than what she thought her life was going to be
2: when she was playing Mumbly Peg as a, as a little girl, right? No, oh, yeah, absolutely. She graduated or ended her schooling at 13 and went straight to work in a tobacco factory where she worked there for three years. But then her sister— Not enjoyable work, I can no, assure you. No, absolutely not. Her sister got married and married a gentleman by the name of Jack. And Jack had his eyes on a town, this little town called Leadville, Colorado. And they eventually moved, her sister and and her brother-in-law moved to Leadville, Colorado. What's in Leadville
0: kind of sounds like a dump.
2: It's actually really interesting. Leadville was an up-and-coming, bustling silver mining town. Mm
0: -hmm. At the
2: time, it was the fastest-growing town in the country. And to add to that, Daniel, her older brother, the one she was so close to, had this back and forth with Leadville, but eventually went there, paid for a ticket for her and her sister Helen to go live there as well. So in May of 1886, Margaret, who was 19, and her sister Helen, who was 15, followed in their older brother's footsteps and left to go to Leadville.
0: So Thaddeus, maybe you can paint a little picture of what Leadville is like in the 1880s.
1: Well, it's a mining town. It's a town that has grown up quickly out of nothing. And you've got All sorts of people there, basically for one reason, to strike it rich and do it quickly. Some are relegated to the mines. Some are relegated to the grocery stores and blacksmith shops and wagoneer shops, all the supportive apparatus to make that town function. Uh, And then you have this small, small group of what came to be known as the Silver Kings, you so this great disparity of of wealth in Leadville, and these silver kings are the are the owners of the mines, owners of the silver mines, and they go about in fancy carriages, and they live in enormous mansions. I mean, enormous for Leadville, but they're imitative of the robber barons and captains of industry that we talked about when we looked at John Raskob. Right, the average miner, on the other hand, is. Facing something like what Molly Brown came from, or worse, in Hannibal, Missouri. Matt, you dug up a little statistic on Leadville about its kind of business makeup, and I know I know you love this little piece of data, so why don't you give that to us?
2: Sure. So in Leadville in 1879, there were 120 saloons. Okay, well, that's not enough in my opinion, but <laughs> so be it. 59 boarding houses. Okay. Three daily newspapers. Too many. Two weekly newspapers. Way too many. One hundred and eighteen gambling houses. Now we're getting there. Thirty-six houses of prostitution. No comment. <laughs> one hundred and forty-seven lawyers. I can understand why. Four, four public school teachers and five ministers tended to the gentler side of life. So
0: Margaret is moving to a town with five ministers, one hundred and twenty saloons, and thirty-six houses of prostitution.
2: Yes. I mean, if you could imagine the priorities in this town. Where the, yeah. I think we've got our priorities out of balance. <laughs>
1: a, little, a little bit. A little bit. We've got this great quote from George Albert Harris, the first settler of Leadville, or so he claimed. Quote, there is no better place for a poor man, a rich man, a wise man, a fool, a mean man, an honest man, or a knave
2: than Leadville. What do you think he was driving at there, Matt? I don't know. That's a very interesting thing. Beautiful place eh, with some extracurricular activities. Absolutely. There's also a great story that describes Leadville, and that is a young pupil who paid for books and tuition from the money he made working in the mines and who had a habit of bringing out his pipe, (laughs) filling it, and smoking it in class.
1: So when his teacher would propose something to the class and say, now put this in your pipe and smoke it. I mean, he literally he took that literally. <laughs>
2: yes, yes.
1: And he was eight years old. Yeah. That's my son. I have a son who's, who's
0: eight and I have a hard time imagining him
1: smoking a pipe.
2: I, I do have a son who's eight as well. And yeah, I can't foresee it.
0: I have a first grader, and I could see her smoking a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> well, your first grader is <laughs> one of the kind. Not me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we go too far, let's move on. What happened next?
2: Okay, so we we've got to bring in James Joseph Brown, also known as JJ. He was a he was a tall, personable young Irishman. He went by JJ to most everybody. He was born in September 27th of 1854, but he was 13 years older than Margaret. He was a self-made man. And all of his life, he wanted to become a miner and he worked his way up learning everything he could. He was a great student of geology, of ore deposits, mining techniques, and he earned a reputation and was considered a genius when it came to mining. So he eventually landed a job with Moffat and Smith. Great. So where did they meet? So in June of 1886, the Lovebirds met at a Catholic picnic just like her parents did. Wow, beautiful. Yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting tie between the two. Mm -hmm. She met her soon-to-be husband and her parents met. Based on what we know
1: about Leadville, that
2: might have been the only Catholic picnic the entire year. (laughs) (laughs) The the thing with Margaret, though, is she was looking for a very specific man. She wanted to marry somebody who was wealthy, and we've got a great quote.
1: Yeah, and and we didn't do any huge research to pull this up. This is just on her Wikipedia page, but it's it's a good quote, we both agreed. She said, I wanted a rich man but I loved Jim Brown. I thought about how I wanted comfort for my father and how I had determined to stay single until a man presented himself who could give to the tired old man the things I longed for him. Jim was as poor as we were and had no better chance in life. I struggled hard with myself in those days. I loved Jim, but he was poor. Finally, I decided that I'd be better off with a poor man whom I loved than with a wealthy one whose money had attracted me. So
2: I married Jim Brown. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So they dated. One story goes that on their first date, JJ shows up on Maggie's doorstep in a modest single horse carriage that had decidedly seen better days. And she said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, we're not doing this, and refused to go on a date with JJ. So the next night he shows up, in a nice two-horse, elegant affair that better suited her expectations, and they went on their first day. Smart man. Smart man. And then on September 1st of 1886, they got hitched at the Annunciation Catholic Church in Leadville. Whoa. Maggie, 19, you said. That makes J.J., 32? Yes. 13 years apart. And if you also listen, she went to Leadville May of 1886. And they got married in September of 1886. So it was like super fast. Was, yeah. Wow. Very fast engagement. hmm So they had two kids. They had Palmer, who was born in 1887, and Catherine, who they called Helen after her sister, born in 1889.
0: Howdy. I'm Andrew, your friendly host of the award-winning Petrus Development Show podcast where i interview great development officers and ministry leaders about how they raise more money for their organization. Subscribe to the Petrus Development Show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. So it sounds
2: like silver mining was going fine, then things were going great. It was, but then in 1892 everything came crashing down. That is you had some some stuff that you found out about this, right?
1: Yeah, the general prosperity of the 1880s was not to last. Until 1873, the United States had always followed what was known as bimetallism. That's you're coining silver and gold. In 1873, a policy of following a gold standard emerged, which was that was the worldwide standard.
0: And the government halted the production of silver dollars. And that was basically to prevent massive inflation, right? If the government can print as much money as they can, then it makes all that money more worthless. So to go to a gold standard means they're limiting how much they can print more or less, right?
1: Yeah. And a gold standard is good for creditors, the ones who hold money, who loan money. Inflation, bimetallism is good for debtors, people who are in need of getting money, because when they take out a loan, if you have inflation increasing, then you're paying back your loan with less money, in a sense, than when you took it out. But free coinage of silver came to be called for from these Western mining states, because at this time, you're starting to have hits on these silver loads in some of these Western states, Colorado especially. Lobbyists worked unsuccessfully for passage of a law that would allow for the unlimited coinage of silver, although the Bland Allison Act of 1878 and the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of 1890 lessened some of this problem. Well, in 1892, the citizens of the United States elect Grover Cleveland as their new president, Democrat from New York. Cleveland was a gold standard man, and during his presidency, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act was repealed in October of 1893. In four days, the price of silver dropped from 83 cents an ounce to 62 cents an ounce. Investors panicked. The price dropped even more. Banks, businesses, mining operations came to a standstill. And by midsummer 1893, a full 90 percent of Leadville's labor force was out of work, and. This was the beginning of what came to be known as the
0: Panic of 1893. It was, a, it was a depression in 1893. So, I mean, I can't imagine any silver mining town can survive a loss of value and a loss of labor force like that. So does Leadville basically just die?
2: It does. It wraps up all operations in every mine that they have. So here we have J.J. and Margaret trying to build a life for themselves. They have two young children— at the time, they're just working normal jobs, supporting themselves through that, and they have nothing else. I mean, they're stuck. They're stuck in this this rut, and they are taking the brunt of what this gold standard means, and there's this Phoenix moment. And so in 1893, after everything changed, the Ibex company came back to J.J. and decided to hire him as a superintendent of a small mine called Little Johnny. And to give this mining thing one more shot in Leadville, but it wasn't for silver. Mm. It was for lead. (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) But remember, if this doesn't work, Margaret and JJ, they lose everything. Mm. I mean, he's, he's spent his whole life studying mining. There's no other options really out there for him. They have everything in this. They would be left destitute. No job, no prospects, no future.
0: So are you going to tell us what he was supposed to find in the little Johnny mine? Tune in next week and you'll find out. I can't wait. Can't wait! (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions. Graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com And on Instagram, Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. All of our Holy Donors were connected to the organizations they support through great development officers. Do you want to learn to raise more money for your organization? Go to PetrusDevelopment.com slash education to learn about our free Petrus Academy offerings every month. See you there.
2: All right. It's real corny if you guys are ready for it. I'm ready. What breed of dog can jump higher than buildings? I got nothing. Any dog because buildings can't jump. Oh, nice. my <laughs> Lord. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah. Hey, why didn't you add that in when we were talking about famous people from Hannibal, Missouri? <laughs> you, <laughs> you,
0: <laughs> you guys just went straight off. Hey, <laughs> you, just
1: get, you get what you get with, with Andrew when you get it. <laughs> They would open the blade. A pocket knife whittled by T. H. Scanlon.
2: <laughs> That's not till next uh, next season. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> and he eventually landed a job with Mofat, Mo and Smith. <laughs> Mofat, Mo So was, was he working Moffitt. with was Moffitt? he working
1: with some uh, some early hip hop artists?
2: Mofat, <laughs> <laughs> Mofat, and Smith. <laughs>